All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Jeff. Uh, as I was just saying, I spent the day in court. I don't want to talk about it. It was um, just, you know, we talk about bureaucracies, we talk about all sorts of things. And uh, I feel like the court system is just like one of those bureaucracies you got to deal with. And it's it's tough because you can imagine like justice is incredibly important and you kind of want justice to be served where the guilty get charged, but the innocent don't get charged. And you, I think our system is designed to favor some people going out uh, not getting convicted in in an effort to have innocent people not get convicted and uh you know it's just there's a lot of rules in place um it's amazing all the uh terms of term of art that uh lawyers throw around in terms of trying to basically throw up roadblocks or uh win win the art win the debate outside of the actual courtroom and um it's just been it's interesting to uh see it in first person so um but it's uh it's good and you uh, it's good. I, you know, I was, I was sick this weekend. That wasn't great. Um, I basically spent the whole weekend in bed, but it was good to get some rest a little bit. Um, we had our showcase last weekend. That was a really fun time. Uh, thank you to everybody who came out. Um, you know, just watching the news and looking at all of the, I don't know, despair kind of got me down while I was in bed, you know, um, the danger was, of doom scrolling, that's for sure. Oh my gosh. I like, I've, I avoid it, you know, because I don't need to be depressed, you know, and like reading the news is depressing. Um, but man, we have like, we have some big economic issues, uh, technologies on the rise, um, you know, immigration, the border is just, mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. Um, and I was thinking like last year, uh, or the year before at this time, you and I were like considering, running for congress and i was running for congress yeah you, two years you ago were, yeah you were well i came in the work i came in the, the race late but i was considering it at this time i just you know i didn't make it till later um and i was just thinking like john what would you do if you were in congress oh my gosh jeff i would do probably so many different things than what's going on right now it's um <laughs> speaking of bureaucracies and, and frustration like you know just you just kind of like read the news and you shake your head and you, you know, obviously there's some kind of spin to it because uh, there's an incentive to make people look bad. So you got to, you know, take things with a grain of salt and you kind of wonder like there's the vocal people you hear about. And then there's probably a lot of people behind the scenes that are trying to make things work and you got to appreciate that. But uh, I, I don't know if I would, uh, I would hope that I wouldn't be uh, causing trouble as it is, but you know, it's one thing that we've actually seen since, uh, our campaigns ended was this whole introduction of these chat GPT models, at least to the public knowledge, like they had been around for a couple of years now and people have been working on them for a while. They're, um, they're large language models and just the idea that it takes in a lot of information and draws these big correlations and then sort of is good enough at guessing what the next word is. And um, I think what's been the most interesting thing about it is it actually it's kind of amazing how um, in a certain sense, like simple language is uh, where there's, there's rules of grammar and computers are good at following rules. So a computer can follow those for the most part. And then there's sort of ideas kind of mold together. So like, if you're talking about pet care, you're probably not going to throw in something about an oil change. And so like a computer is pretty good about doing that um, correlation. And so well, basically these large language models are incredibly impressive at 
taking sort of ideas and sort of riffing on them, if you will. Um, and they're so good at riffing that sometimes you see like there's stories of them, what they call hallucinating, where it sort of just makes things up. Um, there's <laughs> a story this past weekend about this uh, new Google Bard product that they've introduced to Gmail. And basically this guy sort of asked Bard to like, I guess, come up with his greatest insecurity based on his emails. And um, the AI that Google has for it kind of made up an email and said he was insecure um, just based on like newsletter content that was going in, things that he hadn't even written. So we're at this weird juncture where um, there's these incredibly powerful tools that I think, A, don't quite work, you know, maybe in the same way that like an early car would break down a lot, like these AI models like break down a lot. Yeah. And then B, we're all kind of unsure where it's going to go. Um, and, I, you know, I think what I, one of the things I kind of ran on was, I think it's better to sort of let the wild west of technology stay a wild west and like let people innovate and um, come up with new ideas, find the bugs because every software has a piece of, piece of software has bugs. And then like, let this, you know, just let everyone sort of try them out and see where they go. And my biggest fear now is that you're going to get some deep pocketed people in there um, come in there and say, well, we got to set these guards in place for AI because look how dangerous it is. Um, where I think it's just like, it's a sharp tool. And I think in the same way that, uh, you know, like nuclear energy is an incredibly powerful tool, either it's extremely explosive. And if you drop a bomb or it can be extremely um, civil civilizing when it powers uh, our neighborhoods and stuff. So I think like we kind of have to be patient with it, which is tough to say, but I, you know, my take on it is, is it's going to be um, a, a enhancer for people's productivity rather than sort of replacing all of us. So I, and I remember when we first met the day that we met, um, mm -hmm. that was the candidate forum in Loudoun. I don't remember the location exactly. The Middleburg Barn, right? Middleburg Barn. That's where John and I first met. Um, I met you, Katie and Clementine. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe I, I wasn't wearing the red flannel. I was wearing a black and white flannel that day, if I recall. Um, and so that was one of the first things that struck me. I had I had my little notebook out. I'm taking notes on all the other candidates, right? Um, and John was seated at the other far side, and he was he was like, "Look, technology and IT is important in modern day society, and we don't have anybody in Congress who understands it. So how are they supposed to, you know, oversee it?" Uh, and I thought, wow, that's a very simple, <laughs> simple perspective to take and also very, very needed. You know, like I was like, man, we do need somebody in Congress that understands this stuff. So, you know, you, you kind of talked about like your basic concept of, you know, how to handle the wild west of, of, you know, IT and a little bit of a fear of, or AI in this circumstance, a little bit of a fear of like, like you said, deep pockets coming in and over-regulating, you over -regulating, know, over-regulating, yeah, over-regulating, which, which stifles, um, new opportunities in commerce. So like what, you know, if you were in Congress, let's say that John won, John, he just, that day he demolished Jeff Mayhew, Caleb Max and everybody on the stage. He went on the victory. He's in Congress right now. He's got this AI problem. He was right. All, none of us on stage were talking about it. And John was talking about it first and he, he's now in Congress. Like, what do you propose we do about it? Like, because a lot of people are scared about the AI technology and, and like you, you, I think the perfect analogy with the nuclear bomb, right? Because mm -hmm. it is a tool, but every tool is a weapon and the sharper the tool, the more dangerous the weapon. 
So how do we as a society, how would you as a congressional representative protect us, inform us, guide us on how to regulate this properly? Well, Jeff, I hate to throw it back at you, but you always talk, you know, and we talk, I guess, about the importance of a legislator um, communicating. And I think, I don't know if I would propose any legislation. I think I would try to fight any sort of laws that we're going to put in place. Like, well, AI has to stake at a 2022 level. Like, you know, we talk about the nuclear bombs and like, oh, we're going to stop at 2000 bombs per side. And like, you know, you kind of get a stalemate and a truce, but then people work around that and they find workarounds and then you're not ready and now you're at a disadvantage. So I think it's a it's a matter for the legislature to communicate with people. And that's where having some technology expertise in this situation comes in, where you can get on that press conference, that presser at the uh, the triangle at the um, right outside the, the uh, Capitol building. And you can just tell people that this is an incredibly important time in our society and our time in our lives where there are massive changes and we don't understand all the repercussions of them, but it's important that we understand that big change is going to happen. And so it's important that as these changes happen, you know, we are flexible with that, where if someone ends up losing a job, like how can we find them a better job or some other occupation that gives them, gives, uh, keeps their dignity as a person. And how do we also allow these technologies to continue to thrive? I mean, like, if you think about rocket technology, like, again, that's a, you know, you could launch something from uh, my backyard and yours and cause a lot of damage. But at this point, we are launching so many rockets in the sky, and we've got so much competition in the space that now we've got these massive constellations of satellites that can do all sorts of things. Um, and you know, the thought that comes to mind is Starlink, where there's this big constellation of really small, it's really ingenious, like really small satellites that are kind of almost disposable. Uh, not that any satellite is really disposable, but they allow um, you to kind of blanket the earth and you can actually get internet all over the world now, uh, it, whether it's um, the backwoods of Loudoun County or, um, the uh, battlefront in Ukraine or, you know, anywhere in between. And that's, that only happens because we sort of have allowed competition to happen in space because now it's a lot cheaper to launch things up. So I think it's, it's kind of in that same vein, trying to take an existing principle, existing lessons, apply them to new situations. And I think it's a matter of understanding that things are going to change no matter what we do. Uh, and even if we say like, well, we shouldn't do any research, like people are going to figure it out, whether it's us, whether it's the Chinese, the Russians, um, India is a big technology uh, industry. Like people are going to work on this, whether or not there's a, a rule in Congress that says you got to stop at 2022 levels of AI. So recognizing that that things are going to change and then listening and then trying to help and make things better. So, so I, um, think, I think you make a really good point there with the whole, um, you know, just because Congress makes a rule that you can't do it doesn't mean the rest of the world is going to listen. Right. And so then you you run the risk of falling behind with this really you know, powerful new tool slash weapon, right? And so like, we don't want our adversaries having sharper tool, sharper tools than us. Um, and so I think that's really important for people to understand. Now, this may be scary, you know, mm -hmm. because the idea of, you know, like the AI technology, anybody that's played with these devices, it's, it's a little creepy. It's a little creepy because it's like, it's so good. And it's so, so if I may, you know, if, I, if people say, well, Congress has to do something, and I know that's a do something itis, but if we're going to do something, maybe it's just a, a requirement that people lay, label a product that has AI or some kind of correlation engine, if you will, um, come up with some definition, but just people aware that that's what's going on right there, that it's not just a very straight, like A, then B, it's maybe an A and a bunch of things happening. And then maybe you get B sometimes, maybe well, you get C. So I think that's, 
you know, the, the labeling I think is really important. I think right now, so I don't know how many family member or families out there have ever had an elderly member of their family scammed mm -hmm. by a phone call. And so this is, this has happened in my family a couple of times. Nothing's ever bad has happened, but my, um, my grandmother has been called and whoever was on the phone in, was impersonating me. They, Thanks. and they, it's a phishing because they get somebody and they, they say that they're, their grandson and through the conversation they get the name and then it's you know some story about you know wrecking a car getting arrested needing bail money or whatever it is and luckily i have a reputation where my grandmother didn't believe that um so she of course calls um even though they say hey don't call don't call my mom right i don't want i don't don't call my mom that's how they get yeah. you yeah um, but thinking forward this with ai and you know, like I hear like AI songs that sound like Jay-Z, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds like Jay-Z. What if AI could replicate, you know, AI scammers now are replicating family members' voices, making personal phone calls and like getting Bitcoin wired, you know, because it's the future, you know, or, or you know, cash wired or whatever. Having it labeled that like you can't use this stuff unless everybody knows that this is a fake computer generated voice. You know, you can't use it in lieu of real people. You know, I think that's a maybe a small step of regulation that the public could get behind that maybe doesn't hinder, um, you know, the uh, process of creation, but also protects the consumers. Um, I, I think maybe that's, you know, you got something going there. Yeah, I mean, I think like that's that's a small thing, but I think it's a it could be big and sort of having people understand because it, it becomes down to awareness. I think like you, um, you may not realize it. I mean, like, for example, when you... Uh, pay for something at a credit with your credit card at a gas station or something like there's a big AI engine in the back there. And they may not call it machine learning or they may not uh, advertise it as such, but like there's a big engine that is trying to figure out whether or not that card purchases you, Jeff Mayhew, or if it's some guy that stole your credit card number. Um, and they're, they're pretty good about detecting fraud. Um, and you know, things get through just cause it's not perfect. And it also, it, it doesn't want to block every transaction that, um, you know, if you go to a brand new gas station, it's not, doesn't, doesn't want to stop you from getting gas. So like, there's a little bit of slack in that system, but like it isn't in every system. So to just say, well, we're going to ban AI is, is so um, uh, ignorant, if I may. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think like, that's, again, that goes to where having a congressman, congresswoman, congressman that understands that um, and is going to be able to communicate that with their constituents. And given that it's a national stage, you know, with the people at large um, in, in the whole country. Uh, you know, there are certain uh, members of Congress that have an outsized influence on public opinion. And, um, you know, over, one day, maybe I could be one of those people to have that kind of outsized influence if, if on, especially in such an important topic, because you're right. Like when someone calls you and they've got like just that little sliver of information that they can kind of break through and then get enough and feed that back to you, you know, how do you ever stop that? Other than you just have to be aware that these kind of things do happen. Um, and I think that's where having a trusting relationship with your leadership uh, at whatever level can help bridge that gap. And um, yeah. so now, uh, but I, I mean, speaking of the Middleburg barn, um, <laughs> Jeff, I was, uh, I was shocked at what you were saying that night because it was so different from every other person on the stage. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you had this idea of balancing spheres and trying to, uh, you know, you basically crystallized an idea that I had in my head, like something's not right. Um, and you had this, this, what I would say was this uh, amazing idea, if you will, 
um, of, of expanding the House of Representatives. And, you know, like, how would you do that now if, if you were trying to get through? And, and what of the current dysfunction could you use as an example to say, like, see, if we had an expanded house, maybe this would be a lot better. Ooh, that's a good one. So first, I, I, I can't take credit for this idea. This idea has been out there for years. Now, I didn't know that at the time, to be honest with you. I just, I kind of was doing my Madison studying and, you know, reading, just read Federalist number 10, right? Like it's, it's all about spheres and balancing checks and balances, right? Um, and then go through 50, 55, 56, 57, all about the House of Representatives. And you start to really understand how the sphere of power is balanced in our government. Um, so, but there are a lot of, you know, people that have been writing about this for years because it's been a problem for years. As I mentioned on the stage that night, since 1911, our house has been capped and it has shrunk um, the, or, <coughs> excuse me, the number of representatives have remained the same. However, the amount of constituents per district have risen. And what that does is it makes it, you know, it makes it more difficult for the representative to build a relationship with their with the citizens they lead. So that communication is not as good. So mm -hmm. you're not able to inform the people as well. You're not able to listen to the people as well. And I think when you have like when you have someone leading a really large group, it becomes difficult to hold that person accountable, right? Um, and if you look today. I think there's a lot of corruption in our government. Um, a few years ago, we had the uh, stock trading kind of scandal with, um, uh, I think it was, is it Richard Burr from North Carolina? Um, uh, yes. Yeah. He like made a whole bunch of money uh, by selling stocks or buying stocks that had something to do with COVID when he knew that, but the public mm -hmm. didn't know that yet. Um, we have, there's a book right over here, filthy rich politicians, which talks about how politicians, you know, take advantage of the system to profit regularly. And I think right now, look at Bob Menendez, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the democratic Senator or representative, um, who is basically been bribed for years. It looks like, um, where he's got goal, he's researching, <laughs> the weight of gold bars or what a gold bar is worth because he's getting paid off and he's got hundred dollars crisp hundred dollar bills you know almost a million of them in it you know at his house and you think like well what does uncapping to do uncapping the house have anything to do with Bob Menendez and the answer is imagine if Bob Menendez's district was a third of the size I think he's a senator it. though oh a senator senator oh okay yeah so it would be more difficult with with the senator but you have to imagine. Would you imagine a lot of people are doing similar? Like I, I've, right. I, I was it reading becomes, that that he's kind of was the one who got caught because he was doing it too overtly. Like yes. Apparently. Well, it becomes. I think what it happens is, it becomes the normal. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. doing it. Campaign finance is a mess. Um, and I've even talked. I mean, we realistically should have, I think, another senator as well. <laughs> and again, you know. The senators could be the direct election of, uh, you know, from the states as opposed to the people. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think more than anything, what a capping the house does is it creates or it 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 turns the system back into a system of accountability, which was, you know, our founders idea. You know, why is the house? Why is it only two years? Because our founders wanted that person to be held accountable easily by the people. If right. they were doing a bad job, they wanted them out of there as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. But as the districts has, has grown, 
What, is, what has that done? Well, it means that the, the representative is more um, dependent on the party and their ability to get them elected through fundraising and um, canvassing than they are on the people. Um, and, you know, that is a problem because now there's nobody to hold them accountable because if the party's kind of in bed with corruption, which let's face it, the Republican Democratic parties are both in bed with corruption. They have, they're not, their focus is not America. Their focus is the party. They're a mm -hmm. for-profit organization essentially. And the profit is power. Um, and so, you know, by uncapping the house, you, you make those groups smaller, the districts smaller. You allow more opportunities for regular citizens to have a voice, and you allow them to hold their citizens accountable. Now, it's a pretty simple process because it's just a it's just a law that got written. So you just have to repeal it, the uh, Permanent Appropriation Act of 1929, I think it was. And then I think you have to slowly – over about 10 years, start to add house seats. I wouldn't do it all at once. And, you know, maybe the first step would be, uh, we're at 435. I think there's the cube, uh, I can't say the right, uh, cube uh, root or whatever rule. It's like 500, whatever the like uh, lowest number of um, population. So everybody gets at least two, I think, uh, mm -hmm. representatives. And so, and you expand it to 500. And then you know you bring those people in the house, and that becomes a debate of topic for a a new formula to uh, like find our representation or or appropriate our representation. Um, and you you do this over a ten year time span. And then the most important part is that new formula, whatever it is, to keep the people represented. Um, it needs to be written into the Constitution. It needs mm -hmm. to be a constitutional amendment. We've talked about it before. The First Amendment of the Constitution was supposed to be a right of representation essentially um and we have a right to vote and we have a right to vote them out but when the people when your vote doesn't count as much <laughs> excuse me um then you need a right of representation in order to balance those two and make sure that they're both valid but but where are we going to get the money to pay for all that stuff i mean like you're talking about the government spending where are they going to get the money to, to build office buildings and uh, and pay the salaries. So there's there's an article in the Washington Post right now, um, or not right now, but it was written earlier this year of how you can reconfigure the House of Representatives to fit an expanded House. I can't remember the number of seats that was done in there, but I think it's more than my 870. So like it's oh totally really just like the current room could go almost double. Yeah, the the current House itself can go norm uh, double, which then, which is what they do for the State of the Union, right? Like when they they. I've seen the pictures. They pack them in for, and that's in that chamber. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how many, how many um, staff members does each representative have right now? And how much money are they making? And how much money, power do they have? You know? And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe a house representative has, I don't know, 15 staff members right now. And the pay range is somewhere between a hundred and $200,000 a year. Well, if you had a smaller district, you wouldn't need as many staff members. Mm -hmm. um, you eliminate, you know, overall maybe two staff members to each, or maybe three staff members to each congressional rep, and expand the representatives. The money from 
the staff members that get eliminated then goes to the new representatives. And it's not like you're putting these staff members out of a job. They can sure. run for office. Like they could run and be the representative. I mean, back in the day, representatives didn't have 15 staff members or whatever it is to manage their district. And I, I understand why they do right now because the district's too large. There's too right. much work for one person. But essentially, the representative is supposed to be the administrator of the government. Who, you know, you've now outsourced your administration to another administration. No, and I think um, reading in that Senate history book, like up until probably the 50s or 60s, most of the representatives did all the work themselves. Mm -hmm. Like the whole idea of having a permanent staff is a more modern invention of the Congress and this House, House and Senate side. So for a long time, I think the expectation was the representative did the legwork. Um, maybe they had a, a resource or two to help them do some research, but they were responsible for drafting legislation for figuring that out. Now, I think perhaps as the, also you could say like as the government bureaucracy gets bigger and a lot of the job of a congressman is making sure that their constituents get whatever services they're supposed to get. Uh, if it's citizenship issues, if it's some kind of grant issues, um, you know, that's more work on that side for the for the representative to handle um, that would require a staff to kind of triage that and, and then sort of bring it up to the representative's level. So by by nature of the government doing a whole lot more, um, more is also asked of the representative themselves. Um, so it's, you know, it could be another argument for trying to slim down um, the uh, permanent bureaucracy. I mean, that is like, I think that's the first step in slimming down the bureaucracy. I mean, the bureaucracy exists. I mean, it's not why it exists, but it exists now and it's in, it, it's hard to go away now because you need it to manage the affairs of the government. Yeah. And, and it's just because you didn't hire, you didn't, you didn't hire people in the right spot. You know, like <clears throat> you've, you've got a big company, 330 million people, and you hired 430 managers for those people. And then you gave each one of those managers 15 managers underneath them. But what you really should have done is just all of the managers, there instead of 435 with sub-managers, you should mm -hmm. just have, you know, 870, yeah. 1,500, you know, whatever it may be, whatever formula the people decide, you know, because I was talking to um, our friend and I, uh, the other day and I said this, I said, you know, Congress writes laws, but the people write amendments. And that's the people need to understand that. And they need mm -hmm. to get to work, hold their representatives accountable, and make them write some amendments. And those amendments are there to regulate or reform the government, not the people, right? The laws are written to keep the people in check, but the, the laws and the amendments, that's that's written to keep the government in check. So if you have a government that's kind of out of whack, out of balance, if you will, then the people need to step up and write some amendments. We've got, you know, we've got long stretches of our history where we almost do nothing, the people that is, and then we end up in these really bad spots. And then we do a lot of things in the constitution, a lot of amendments, and then we have long stretches of nothing again. You know, it's the antebellum period. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens in the constitution. But after the Civil War, a lot of stuff happens in the Constitution. <coughs> the Gilded Age, nothing happens in the Constitution. 
the then you have like the turbulence of the progressive era you know at the beginning the the end of the uh gilded age the beginning of the progressive era and then what do you have a lot of amendments being written Mm -hmm. and we really haven't for a long period of time we haven't written any amendments the people have been quiet and they haven't you know we can complain that congress isn't doing their job but i would say the people aren't doing their job absolutely i mean like again the representative is a representative of the people. And um, I've been, I think I mentioned earlier, I've been reading the American Republic by Rusty's Brown. since so I had a lot of time to read it today. And he has this really amazing idea that the, the, there's like two parts to the constitution. There's sort of the law that's written on paper, but he, he argues that the law that's written on paper is really a, a reflection of the constitution of the people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like you said, like the, those amendments are written by the people. And so the fact that, We've all kind of been content for for a long time in our current structure, and now um, we realize like there's some rough edges that are happening. Uh, it's time for us to start thinking about amendments that we'd write, and you know you could do some some simple ones. But I, I, I've, I've been thinking about this this past week. I think there's probably like four that I think you could just do bop 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 and um, make some really big changes, and then you can. And and again, these aren't sort of about issues per se. These are about the constitution is about the structure of the government and sort of the rules that the government follows. So I'm just thinking about this. I like I think you know we you talked again. I'm back to the Middleburg barn. You talked about campaign finance reform, and you brought up this point that this has to get fixed. And I, at the time, I was thinking like, yeah, but but the Supreme Court said said you can't do that. So like we're stuck with that. But then you know again thinking about it, like we the people can put write an amendment to the constitution that says. Congress can limit the amount of that someone donates to a campaign and Congress can say that only citizens of the United States can donate. And then once it's in the constitution, guess what? The Supreme court now has to honor that. That's right. So you've actually, you've, you fixed that problem. So yes, the Supreme court has said now that anyone, pretty much anyone can donate any amount, as long as you know, the legal loopholes to get it through. Um, but I think if, if, if Cong, if we, the people were to put that amendment in there, and I think it's real simple, it's, it's Congress shall have the power to limit uh, con- individual contributions to a campaign, and uh, Congress should have the ability to limit who can donate. And I, I think, think, like, you put a, uh, you got to put a, got to put borders around it too. And what, and what, what, what? Well, like, I mean, like, basically, I you're seeding in Virginia. Well, I think. Well, so I think for an amendment, you kind of want it to be big and overarching so i would i think that's i agree with that point like keep virginia's money out of new york keep new york's money out of virginia but i think that's something where that's a future fight in congress to sort of battle with this i think the first thing is getting in people's mind that you can put limits on it because it's sort of been congress has been ceded that authority and i think it you gotta um i think if you get too technical an amendment it makes it tougher to get through and i think but, you know, I don't know. I'm... I think I, I think I mean, I think you're on to something, you know, is like you this is the maximum donation that you can make. Right. Which mm-hmm. honestly, I would individual donations, as long as businesses aren't making donations, you can make it pretty substantial. You know, I I'm, think not, so. I'm yeah. not opposed to, uh, you know, like I, what is it in Virginia right now? Well, Virginia has no limits, so it's kind of a wild west, but well, federally well, it's federally it's thirty three hundred per individual. Well, so. The con- a constitutional amendment would not regulate Virginia's elections, though. That would be something Correct. that has to do. This would be just for the federal, which you mm-hmm. said is thirty three hundred per person. Per person, like I'm not opposed to a five thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not like I don't. You don't need money to run for elections. You kind of do. Um, yeah. 
But I think the more important thing is, yes, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Yeah. More importantly, you have to be a citizen of the state that the candidate is running in, and you have to be a resident of that state that the candidate is running in, and it has to be your primary residence, right? And I think that's pretty simple enough. Um, and now you don't have to worry as much from people from Virginia traveling to California, raising a whole bunch of money, coming back to Virginia, getting elected, and then shaping Virginia like California. Like mm -hmm. we've all seen those political ads here in Virginia is like, don't California up my Virginia. Well, how do you think it happens? Or, or you know, don't <laughs> Texas my Virginia, you know, both sides on that. I mean, like that's, but that's the, that is the problem. It's sort of that outside influence that comes in and sort of strips the sovereignty of a person because their voice is being drowned out by outside uh, voices, uh, outside dollars that control the messaging. So, um, you know, I think that's, I think that's a key, key first amendment to really fix because um, it's just become, it's such a focus of, of every campaign is, you know, you got to raise $300,000. Otherwise you're not worth considering at all. Um, and I, you know, I think that's so, so backwards. It should be about the ideas. It should be about how you're going to represent a district, how you're going to um, improve things. And uh, I don't, you know, so how about what was your other two? So you said we've so I, I I got four that I was been thinking about. The other one is term limits. Um and I think that's that's one I mean you could rule you could have a discussion on the numbers. I was been thinking about this, I think like twelve years for the house and twelve years for the senate. So two senate terms. So and, um, I think twelve years for the house is great. That was my plan when I ran. Um I think you leave the Senate um first of all, in combination you repeal the seventeenth amendment, but mm -hmm. you leave the Senate. Okay. I I say you leave the Senate lifetime there is value in experience mm -hmm. and i think having having the balance of fresh people in the congress and experience in the senate will help us as a nation as a union as a whole bind us together i think if you turn those people over at the same time too quickly i think that you risk the union unraveling over time it, it would only take like a couple of generations back to back of being discontent to really rip us apart. I mean, we're kind of ripping apart at the seams now and you could blame a lot of the old people, but you could also look, I bet you there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know about where a lot of the old people are really holding things together. And mm -hmm. we'll learn about it in a biography like 15 years from now. Um, I don't know who who's gonna write, maybe Brands is already working on it. <laughs> no, that's a good deal. I think that's why the house term moment has to be the 12 years. Cause again, like, I think six years, you just get way too much turnover. And again, it goes back to now who's running the show. Is it the, the members of, of the of the house or is it the bureaucracy underneath them? That's kind of, you know, they put the riders on the bills and then this uh, new freshman house member comes in and says like, what the heck is this? And the this, this staff member says, oh, it's always been there. And then, then um, you kind of get that institution. And then the people, the people with the more control are the, um, the, of lifetime staffers that are there so maybe term limits on staff then too oh that's you know what that is an that's a very interesting concept that nobody i don't think i've ever heard that before but yeah that might be a good idea i but you know what i don't even know if it's really a problem i'd have to go like research no i know you yeah that's one of the thing like um maybe it's not maybe it's just the rules or something or um so we got so other idea oh so again i think uncap the house that's the third third of the uncap the house um but then as we've been thinking about this term limits and then you got one more i got one more for you 
uh, provide housing for members of Congress. Ooh, see, and I, I, I like this. And, I, and I, the way I would do it, I would say um, this. I think this also solves a D.C. statehood problem, because, again, like there's a lot of truth to that fact that D.C. at this point is effectively a, a state and probably has, you know, what is it? People always say it's got more population than, than Wyoming or something like seed most of, of the district back to Maryland. Um, so then Maryland will get another congressional district out of that, uh, basically with the population. And then the federal government would control um, a lot of the land sort of around its current uh, base of operations. So, you know, I don't know what streets you'd pick or something, but you just sort of say like, this is all owned by the federal government, managed by the federal government. Um, and I think then as part of that, then you have housing there for staffers if they need it, but really for members of Congress. And you kind of go back to that, I don't want to say like that magical era, but sort of the where when Congress was young, um, and probably actually before, maybe up until airplanes when you could jet back and forth. But, you know, you were stuck in D.C. working on things together and you you kind of just by the nature of being together, certain relationships form that um, of, of respect with each other. You know, like I think there's a big problem now where. And I think it's very obvious, like people on one side don't talk to the other and yeah. people between the houses don't talk to each other. And I think we need to get back to that spot where they're all just kind of um jumbled together and you become you you can develop friendships you know not obviously not with everyone because there's a lot of people and especially when once you get capped the house it's gonna be a lot lot more people but it's gonna be the opportunity for everyone to sort of have working relationships with each other such that when big difficult decisions come through you have some kind of credibility with each other where you can say like yeah yeah you give me this i'll give you that you trust each other right. you vote on one thing the other guy votes on another thing and you can actually perhaps unjam this log jam, even though you got more people, even though it's more frustrating, but getting our members back together, um, I think would, would be beneficial for everyone. And so I think the way to do that is, and again, that also solves the problem of, well, um, when you come to DC, now you got two households, you get your household back in your home district, um, or you've got, and you get your household in DC, where does your family go with all this? Like, it's just, I think it's better for everyone. If you could have sounded like, yeah, part of the, the perk, part of the job of being in Congress is now, you got to move everyone to, to your area and you can go back to your home state when you need to, but you're kind of stuck in DC, um, except for the, the key times you got to go campaign. And I think that's going to fix a lot of problems. I, uh, so I love this. I never thought about it as a constitutional amendment, um, but it is very intriguing. I, I had the opportunity to go into an event where Spamberger from BA7 was speaking and I asked her about uncapping the house. And then I spoke to her about it afterwards. And one of the things that she kind of mentioned, which, by the way, she's totally in agreement. She thinks the house, I mean, she didn't say she agreed, but she knew her topic and it sounded like she agreed that the house should be uncapped. Um, one of, you know, what she, we talked about is she's like, well, like, what about pay? What about mm -hmm. where are they going to live? You know, kind of the same things that you were talking about. And I, this is what I brought up. I was like, well, which, which I think are reasonable objections, yeah, but it's very, absolutely. But, and I was like, well, what about housing members of Congress in? you know, DC building mm -hmm. housing forum that stays and then the rep stays there. I wouldn't necessarily open it up for like families to come in. I think it should just be the representative of the family stays in the district they are, they travel back and forth. But what this does, it does exactly what you said. It brings them together. And I, you know, when I was talking to Spamberger, I went back to like 
John Adams and Benjamin Franklin like traveling together to, to mm-hmm. France and whatnot. And just the stories of these great men that like bunked up in boarding houses in Philadelphia, in London, in Paris, all these places and the, and the stuff they learn from each other, you know, just being in the same room together, you know, iron sharpens iron. And if you want your con- congressional representatives to be iron, um, so it's good to put them in a place that they can sharpen each other. And then mm-hmm. the second thing it does is it lessens the financial burden for congressional representatives that live far away because it's expensive to live in DC. If you're a representative from, you know, Wyoming, you probably, you know, the, the, the economy is not the same in Wyoming. The cost of living is not the same. You probably have to pay more for your living quarters here than at home. And that, you know, yeah, you make $200,000 a year or whatever it may be, I think it's 195. And that's a lot of money to most Americans, but not when you have to, you know, hold two houses um, or even just pay rent for one. So I think you eliminate that as well. And then, you know, it, I just think, you know, bringing the people together, I think that's like the main point of this, bringing them in the same location. I think it's, it's, I think it's a great idea. We should totally do that. Okay. So those those are my four ideas. I mean, I think and I think that would solve a lot of structural problems. And then and then you can get to the the sort of topic du jour that that is driving the conversation, if that's spending limits or something like that. I mean, like if these if these congressmen and women were better friends, do you think that we'd be having these like floor spats about um funding bills right now? Like, no, they would find they would figure out a way to pass the actual budget, the 12 bills that they're trying to pass right now and get it done in an appropriate amount of time rather than holding it off like a late night homework assignment that's due the next day. And then, um, you know, and it's not just like, oh, you're going to get an F on the test. Like it's going to affect the country in yeah. in big ways. And that's a dereliction of duty on their part. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's a shame. And, yeah. and like you said, what this does is it reforms the system to get better qualified people in there. Yeah. <laughs> it holds them accountable, you know, because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, if Congress is – Congress – is always they're always the the kid that turns their homework in late right yeah. they're always cramming the night before they're never prepared and it's because we elect people that are not prepared we elect people that don't know what they're doing and it's because of this very difficult system that we have to go through it's because of the campaign finance it's because the districts are too much you know there's a lot of things that go into it and it's like yeah we can argue about immigration and policy all day long but until you get people in that building that actually know how to debate, not argue, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to get any change. And are interested in governing rather than uh, getting the next Fox News hit or or winning the next election or winning the next election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think that was this is a good episode, John. This is a great episode. We should do this. So we're going to do this going forward. You know, it's 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 election season in Virginia because mm-hmm. it's always election season in Virginia. And John and I, you know, there's. I I'm, I apologize for all the coughing today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, like I said, I was sick this weekend. Um, so there is going to be a congressional race in Virginia coming up next year. The House seat in VA10 is empty, and people are texting me, John, if I'm going to run. Are people texting you? No, and actually, my my mother is not terribly thrilled about thinking about it. So, <laughs> well, I figured instead of running, we could just talk about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, what no, I think we, that put those ideas out there. Yeah. And then, and then it doesn't make your mother upset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have to answer those text messages. Say, Hey, go listen to the podcast. Go listen to the podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, um, 
that is our episode today. Uh, we appreciate you uh, tuning in. I'm going to try to wrap this up soon before I start another bit. Um, John, you have anything to leave with the people today? I think it's important to remember that the government is, you know, our government is the consent of the governed. And as soon as you forget that, you let people walk over you. And I think we have to recognize that. And um, and then the other the other thought I had reading the American Republic that was brought up is the fact that sometimes there's laws that we don't like, and sometimes it's it's okay to sort of live under them and to 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 respect the rule of law, and then work through the system to fix it. And I think that's that's the goal here. It's you know realizing there's there's flaws in the campaign finance system, in the makeup of our representation, but um, you know there is a way to fix that, and it's there's a proper way to do that, and that's that's what we're about doing it proper, doing it right. Absolutely. I love it. All right. Thank you all for joining in. Peace and love.